Well, welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. And tonight, inevitably, we are going to be ranting about the absolutely horrific developments in Syria over the past week with a Turkish military incursion, possibly even an invasion of the uh, Kurdish Autonomous Zone in the northeast of Syria, known as Rojava to the Kurds, carrying with it, as I shall be discussing, the grave risk, perhaps it's even already started, of a generalized Arab-Kurdish ethnic war in Syria. And, you know, this is precisely the outcome that I have been anticipating and warning against literally for years now. And uh, now that it's uh, finally happening, it's still so horrific that I can, even having, you know, been Cassandra and been warning of it in vain, (laughs) I can still barely believe that it's really happening. Listeners will note, listeners who have actually been listening to this podcast on SoundCloud and have been going to the Counter Vortex or Bill Weinberg page on SoundCloud to listen to the podcast, will note that I have... um, changed the banner image at the top of the page, which previously had a, a photograph of a banner from uh, one of our serious solidarity protests here in New York City. So it was a banner image that actually showed a picture of a banner. It was the banner of a banner. And uh, the banner, which it portrayed, said, Free Syria, Free Palestine, with the respective flags of Palestine and what we call the free Syria flag, that which is raised by the opposition forces in Syria, that with a green stripe on top, a white stripe in the middle, and a black stripe on the bottom. And the white stripe in the middle has got three red stars, as opposed to the um, flag of the fascistic and genocidal Bashar Assad regime, that still recognized by the uh, United Nations, which has got a uh, red stripe on top, a white stripe in the middle, and a black stripe in the bottom. And the middle white stripe has got two green stars. It might seem like a uh, small difference, but an awful lot of blood has been shed over it. And the free Syria flag, that with the three red stars, is the flag of the opposition forces, which began to um, you know coalesce following the beginning of the Syrian revolution in 2011, which began as a peaceful, secular, unarmed pro-democracy movement demanding once again the downfall of the regime. The people want the downfall of the regime being the slogan of the Arab revolution that began in uh, 2011. And because of this legacy of this flag, the Free Syria flag coming to represent a pro-democratic popular revolutionary movement, the podcast rant that I gave back just before May Day of this year, I was explaining why I was going to be joining a contingent that was flying this flag, the Free Syria flag, despite the fact that, you know, I'm basically in my heart of hearts an anarchist, and I generally reject all forms of nationalism. I found that it was uh, the particular point which needed to be made the imperative to support the Syrian revolution demanded marching behind the free Syrian flag. And now, in the incredibly horrific and painful events of the past week, one of the more hideous 
incidents which came to light was an atrocity which was committed by an armed faction by the name of Arar al-Sharqiya, which is uh, one of the constituent militias of what is calling itself the Syrian National Army, which is actually rebel forces, opposition forces, being backed by Turkey and cooperating with Turkey in its invasion of Rojava. And last week, fighters with Arar al-Sharqiya committed an extrajudicial execution of Kurdish captives, seemingly including non-combatants, because of the three Kurdish men who were executed, only one of them was actually wearing military fatigues, the rest were in civilian dress, and these fighters, apparently from Arar al-Sharqiya, actually filmed this illegal extrajudicial execution and had it posted on social media. And there's one incredibly horrific, painful photo of um, these guys standing above their victims who were about to be executed, two Kurdish men in civilian dress, kneeling on the ground while these fighters stand over them, holding banners with what I have been calling the free Syrian flag, that of the Syrian opposition. Also apparently extrajudicially executed by the same faction, Arar al-Sharqiya, was a woman by the name of Hevrin Kalaf, who was participating in the uh, autonomous administration of Rojava, while actually seeming to be at least something of a dissident within it, because she had her own political party, the Syria Future Party, which seems to have been something of an opposition party within the Rojava Autonomous Administration, which, as its name implies, was actually calling for um, a multi-ethnic Syria and rebuilding unity with the rest of the country. And, uh, you know, the fact that she was actually something of a principled dissident within the Rojava administration I would argue, made it all the more imperative that she needed to be executed or assassinated by the forces which are bent on demonizing the Kurds as separatists and splitters and totalitarians and etc. and sparking an Arab-Kurdish ethnic war in northern Syria. So it pains me a great deal that the Free Syria flag, which I have been rallying around as the symbol of a democratic revolution in Syria, is now the flag which has literally been raised while an atrocity was being committed. So <clears throat> I removed that, the image of that banner from the, the banner on the, on the SoundCloud page, and I replaced it with another image, which still, by the way, shows the Free Syria flag. But it shows that flag being raised alongside the flag of the YPG, the People's Protection Units, which is the Kurdish militia in northern Syria. And the photo was taken in that glorious moment in 2014 when the Kurdish Arab opposition flying the Free Syria flag and the Syrian Kurdish opposition flying the flag of the YPG the People's Protection Units, were united against both the Assad regime and against ISIS and actually formed a united front politically and a military bloc to beat back the ISIS advance in northern Syria. 
this is a picture which shows uh, a bunch of guys in military fatigues and ammo belts and so on. <laughs> and it's all guys, <laughs> despite the fact that Kurds have notoriously got woman fighters as well. In this particular image, it happens to be all guys. And uh, I don't, well, not being a dogmatic pacifist, I also don't believe in glorifying war. So I'm usually reluctant to um, put up an image of a bunch of guys in ammo belts and battle fatigues as uh, the image representing my podcast. But in this case, it's making a particular very important political point. Because this moment back in 2014, when elements of the Free Syrian Army were united with the YPG, the Kurdish-led People's Protection Units, against ISIS and against the Assad regime was the shining moment of hope for the Syrian revolution and for the future of Syria, that there actually could be Arab-Kurdish coexistence and political alliance against the totalitarianisms of both the Assad regime and ISIS. And today, five years later, both sides have been so pitted against each other that it's almost verboten to even remember that this alliance existed. And yet it did, and the photographic evidence is right there on the Counter Vortex SoundCloud page, as well as our Twitter page. And that alliance was shattered, not, I will emphasize, by any, you know, innate inability of Kurds and Arabs to get along with each other. It was shattered by imperial meddling and intrigues in Syria, and by the complete lack of solidarity that the Syrian revolution has received from the outside world. The following year, 2015, Russia massively intervened on behalf of the Assad regime, and under massive Russian aerial bombardment, the rebels and opposition forces were beaten back. In 2016, the rebel-held city of Aleppo fell to regime forces after a massive joint regime-Russian campaign of aerial bombardment, the city being virtually destroyed, and the northern provinces of Idlib and Hama became the last refuge of the opposition forces. And in this desperate situation, facing a truly genocidal enemy, with the Assad regime carrying out massive reprisals and mass extermination of dissidents and opposition forces in the areas of the country which he had reconquered, the remnant rebel and opposition forces holding out in Idlib and a part of Hama provinces accepted military support and political patronage from Turkey. And the Erdogan regime in Turkey, of course, is intransigently opposed to any kind of Kurdish autonomous zone in Syria. So, as the cost of accepting Turkish patronage, the opposition forces in Idlib and Hama had to break their ties with the Kurds. The Kurds, meanwhile, also facing a genocidal enemy in ISIS, which was threatening them in their territory, accepted military support and a degree of political patronage from the United States. And the YPG became the, uh, the central pillar of um, a new military coalition called the Syrian Democratic Forces, which openly coordinated with Pentagon airstrikes in the campaign against ISIS in northern Syria. 
and were sort of groomed by the U.S. as a proxy force to take Raqqa and other areas of northern Syria, which were held by ISIS, and succeeded, but at a terrible cost. One cost being that the city of Raqqa was virtually destroyed by U.S. aerial bombardment, and then it was occupied by the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, despite the fact that Raqqa is an Arab-majority city. So large areas of northeastern Syria, which were not traditionally Kurdish, but were traditionally Arab-majority, were now occupied by Kurdish forces. So we can see how the Arabs and the Kurds have been pitted against each other after having been allied in 2014. In the subsequent years, were pitted against each other. And you heard more and more war propaganda on both sides against the other. And I heard more and more from my friends who were supporting the Syrian revolution that the Kurds were separatists and terrorists and totalitarians. And I heard more and more from my friends who were supporting Rojava and the Kurds that the Arab opposition were jihadists and terrorists and totalitarians. Each side faulted the other for accepting the sponsorship of foreign powers Turkey in the case of the Arabs, the United States in the case of the Kurds, and neither side acknowledged the pressure from genocidal forces, which made this an inevitability, primarily the genocidal force being the Assad regime in the case of the Arabs and ISIS in the case of the Kurds. And these decisions by both parties were tragic, but it isn't like they weren't made under very, very, very bad circumstances which left the Arabs and the Kurds alike with no good choices, but were forced to do what was necessary in order to survive, to fight another day. So throughout these past years that the Arabs and Kurds have been pitted against each other, I've been warning that Syria was on a trajectory towards an Arab-Kurdish ethnic war, and now it appears that it is upon us with Arab militias under the rubric of the so-called Syrian National Army serving as a proxy force for Turkey in its invasion of Kurdish territory, of Rojava. Now, I would like to think that even now it isn't inevitable, although it's starting to look more and more inevitable each day. The recent headlines, the headlines over the past 48 hours, have been of a so-called ceasefire in northern Syria, worked out by uh, Vice President Pence and uh, Turkish President Erdogan. And, uh, well, the first thing I'd have to do is warn that, contrary to the media reports, it isn't actually a ceasefire. The Turkish government has been very, very clear on this, that um, it's not actually a ceasefire, and that the Kurds are not a party to it. And it is merely a suspension of hostilities for a period of five days to give the Kurdish forces a chance to withdraw from the Orwellianly named Safe Zone, which Turkey is hoping to establish in northern Syria. And by the way, hoping to repopulate with Syrian Arab refugees from Turkish territory so that they can be, you know, formally expatriated back to, you know, their own country. But this would essentially be using these refugees as demographic cannon fodder and moving Arabs into territory which has been cleansed of Kurds. And this could potentially be laying, you know, the conditions for generations of ethnic warfare in Syria. But I'm trying to, you know, be a little bit hopeful here 
And, uh, okay, the fighting has not completely abated since this non-ceasefire, as it were, has been declared. And like I say, it isn't really a ceasefire. What it really is, is an ultimatum to the Kurdish forces to withdraw from this so-called safe zone. And uh, nobody even agrees on what the actual dimensions of the safe zone are. The text of the agreement that Pence and Erdogan signed off on does not even say what the geographic borders of the so-called safe zone are. And in fact, uh, you know, Turkey has been claiming 100 kilometers into Syrian territory, while the U.S. has been insisting on 20. So right away, this is a huge contradiction. So this could well be, you know, ethnic cleansing under the cover of a so-called ceasefire. You know, an ultimatum to the YPG to withdraw from this ill-defined safe zone, ill-defined and Orwellianly named safe zone, which would then, you know, leave the Kurdish population of this area completely defenseless. And already, something like 160,000 Kurds have fled northern Syria just over the past week and change since the offensive was launched. Some of them have actually fled across the, um, the border into Iraq and are in refugee camps there and have become official refugees, so to speak, not just internally displaced persons. Once you actually cross international borders, you are considered under international law to be a refugee. But nonetheless, there actually seems to have been, if not a complete halt, at least an, a, an abatement in the fighting. And maybe this buys us a little bit of time to come back from the brink and buys us a little bit of time to raise an outcry internationally against the Turkish aggression. And certainly, you know, it's a sign of hope that even, paradoxically, <laughs> Republicans, <laughs> finally, the Republicans have broken ranks with Trump on this whole matter. Because, of course, you know, Trump, as we all know, gave a green light to the Turkish aggression by uh, withdrawing the U.S. troops who were embedded with the YPG in northern Syria. Even the Republicans, Mitch McConnell most famously, have been criticizing this. And in fact, it was, you know, the pressure from a world outcry which uh, caused Erdogan to even agree to this pseudo ceasefire of five days. So it's absolutely imperative that we keep the pressure on. And I'll point out by, uh, by way of analogy, during Operation Desert Storm way back in 1991, President Poppy Bush encouraged the Kurds in northern Iraq to take up arms against the regime. And they did. And then Saddam's forces were driven back from Kuwait and Poppy Bush declared victory and the Kurds were abandoned. Surprise, surprise. And Saddam launched a massive military campaign against the Kurds and was carrying out terrible reprisals against the Kurds. And there was world outcry about this, about how the Kurds had basically been subject to a bait and switch where they had been encouraged to rise up and then after they did, they were sold down the river. And under pressure of this global outcry, the Bush administration was shamed into establishing a no-fly zone in northern Iraq, which allowed the Kurds to take power there and to establish um, their autonomous zone, their uh, autonomous government in, uh, in northern Iraq, which survives to this day and has actually become the most stable and prosperous part of the country. Now, there's a couple of obvious differences here between what happened in Iraq after Desert Storm and the current 
situation in Syria. One is that the Kurdish leadership in northern Iraq were not, you know, anarchist-influenced radical leftists the way the Rojava leadership is, the Kurdish leadership in, um, in northern Syria. They were just kind of, you know, traditional ethnic nationalists, patriarchal politicians. And uh, a related point, they were not militantly opposed by Turkey, as the Rojava leadership is. And Turkey, even now that, uh, you know, thanks to his recent atrocious actions, Erdogan is increasingly politically isolated from his NATO partners. Nonetheless, Turkey continues to be a NATO member and something of a geopolitical player. Even now, it's kind of hard to believe that the U.S. is just going to go against the wishes of Turkey and allow the, or assist the Rojava Kurds in reestablishing, you know, uh, their autonomous zone in northern Syria. And certainly Trump's rhetoric has just changed overnight. It's just amazing how fast the Rojava Kurds went from being, uh, you know, heroic freedom fighters and U.S. coalition partners to being terrorist vermin, with Trump actually saying that, you know, northern Syria needed to be cleansed because of the terrorist threat there from the Kurds. Unbelievable. But nonetheless... With a, uh, you know, with sober senses, as it were, and a realistic sense of the rather grim odds which we're facing, it, of course, is necessary, especially right now, that this, uh, you know, five-day ceasefire or pseudo-ceasefire is in effect, that we, you know, exploit this window and, and really mount pressure to protest the Turkish aggression. Another complicating factor, and an extremely painful one that just fills me with anguish, is that just as, you know, elements of the Free Syrian Army have now become military partners of Erdogan in his aggression against the Kurds, similarly, the Rojava Kurds have now entered into a military pact with the Bashar Assad regime. And it's important to recall that they have been forced into this. They have been betrayed by the United States. They are facing ethnic cleansing and potentially genocide at the hands of the Turkish invasion. The Turks are advancing, the Turks and, you know, their allied Syrian Arab militias are advancing from the north. Assad and his forces were advancing into the same territory from the south. So they were forced to take sides. And of course, the side they're going to take is the side which was offering them some kind of a partnership and not extermination. So they were forced into an alliance with Bashar Assad. Nonetheless, the fact that the Kurds are now cooperating with the fascistic and genocidal Assad regime that the Arab rebels in Syria have been fighting for the past eight years, unfortunately further cements the trajectory towards Arab-Kurdish ethnic war. So northern Syria is right at the very brink of a malestrum of ethnic war and hatred, to which all of the relentless horror that we have witnessed in Syria over the past eight years could be a mere prelude to. To make it even worse, there is, uh, you know, the risk of international escalation. Russia has been backing the Assadist forces. And in fact, Russian troops are reported to have taken control of the town of Manbij in northern Syria in proximity to the advancing Turkish forces. So there is actually the possibility that Turkish and Russian forces could be mixing it up in northern Syria in the days or weeks to come. 
And with Turkey being a member of NATO, I do not have to emphasize, I hope, the potential this holds for escalation, quite literally, to the unthinkable. Another aspect of the situation that just fills me with pain and anguish is that, uh, okay, we're all aware that, uh, you know, the Rojava Kurds are not explicitly anarchist, but they are influenced by anarchism. And they've had, you know, international anarchist volunteers fighting amongst their ranks. And uh, now, apparently, there are, uh, you know, such international anarchist volunteers from Europe and Turkey and possibly America, who I understand have joined in the defense of Rojava against the Turkish invasion, which means that there are actually now anarchists who at least have entered into a de facto alliance with the Assad regime, which is also coming to the defense of Rojava against the Turkish invasion, if completely for its own cynical reasons. Certainly not out of any respect for uh, Kurdish autonomy in Rojava. Absolutely not. So, uh, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but I have to call it as I seize it. We seem to be witnessing the ultra-paradoxical reality of a sort of an anarcho-fascist convergence. And I, again, I insist the Bashar Assad regime is fascist. It is a leader-worshipping, one-man autocracy of the far right, of ultranationalism and the far right, which has actually been committing genocide. It is fascist by any definition. And now it seems anarchist volunteers and fighters from this regime are on the same side in northern Syria. Utterly, utterly demoralizing. So again, it's really hard to find hope on this landscape, but I'm going to attempt to do so. It is imperative, especially now in this, you know, five-day window, and hopefully enough people are going to listen to this podcast over the next five days that it'll make some difference that I'm invoking this five-day window. (laughs) Especially now in this five-day window, it is absolutely imperative that the Turkish aggression in northern Syria must be opposed. A worldwide outcry must be raised against it. And I appeal to my allies who are joining me in opposing the Turkish aggression to reject any accommodation with the Assad regime and its supporters and apologists here in the West. And in opposing the Turkish aggression in Rojava, it is also imperative that we oppose the ongoing Assad and Russian bombardment of Idlib and Hama, which the so-called anti-war forces in the West have been shamefully silent about. And I similarly appeal to my allies who are opposing the Assad-Putin bombardment of Idlib and Hama to also oppose the Turkish aggression in Rojava. And it's very interesting, beginning with the bombardment of Aleppo in 2016, and continuing now into the bombardment of Idlib and Hama today, supporters of the Syrian opposition, the main Arab-led Syrian opposition, have very often been calling for a no-fly zone to protect the civilian population of northern Syria, which was, of course, echoing the demand of the people on the ground who were under bombardment. And those in the West who raised this demand for a no-fly zone were relentlessly baited ironically, by the left and the right equally. (laughs) 
as, uh, you know, neocons and warmongers, et cetera, et cetera. And now many of the supporters of Rojava in the face of the Turkish aggression have been demanding a no-fly zone for Rojava. And again, what's maddening is that there seems to be practically zero overlap between these two groups and that the people who have been demanding a no-fly zone for Aleppo and then for Idlib are not now demanding a no-fly zone for Rojava. And the people who are now demanding a no-fly zone for Rojava were utterly silent during the bombardment of Aleppo and during the ongoing bombardment of Idlib. So, folks, it's really, really, really imperative that we get over this and that we here in New York City and the United States and the West who have the luxury of not being under aerial bombardment do not, in our own rhetoric and analysis, play into the imperial divide-and-conquer game which has pitted the people of Syria against each other. And since following the Turkish aggression, it has apparently now become permissible on the left to talk about a no-fly zone for Syria, maybe we should be raising the demand for a single standard no-fly zone for Rojava and for Idlib and Hama and denying access to the warplanes of Turkey and of the Assad regime and of Russia alike. Just putting that out there for your consideration. Something to think about. But even if we're not going to universally embrace the demand for a no-fly zone, and of course I recognize no need to elaborate on all the problems which are raised by a no-fly zone, which I have always acknowledged in terms of, you know, extension of U.S. imperial reach, because almost certainly the U.S. would have to be at least involved in enforcing the no-fly zone, and the risk for escalation. I've never denied those risks. Those risks are obvious and real. But, you know, the people who oppose the idea of a no-fly zone never acknowledged the risks of, you know, the world just standing there and doing nothing in the face of genocide in Syria. And what are the political and the karmic consequences of that? Everybody wants easy answers. Unfortunately, here in the real world, there aren't any. So even if we're not going to support a no-fly zone, even if we're not ready to take that step, or if all of us aren't ready to take that step, I hope that now, at last, when it has become more urgent than ever, we can raise a single standard voice of protest at the aerial bombardment of civilian populations in Syria, Arab and Kurdish alike, and oppose the ongoing bombardment of Idlib and Hama by Putin and Assad, and oppose the bombardment and invasion of Rojava by Erdogan. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I hope some of you will join me. In any case, I'd be very, very interested in what you have to say about all this. And, um, Like I say, the situation is really urgent. I call upon anybody who uh, is moved by what I'm saying to share this podcast widely in the um, now four days remaining to us of this um, so-called ceasefire. This has been The Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Join the resistance. Rant on you next time.